Call for the weeping mothers, the lost fathers, and the forsaken children, and let them come quickly, for a voice of crying is heard out of Zion, for we are greatly confused, for death has come into our ghettos to cut off the young men and women from the streets of Philadelphia, New York, L.A., Georgia, Ohio, Florida, Mississippi, and throughout America, South America, the Caribbean islands, Africa, Asia, and all over the world. So return unto me, thus saith Yah, and I will return unto you, O my people. Hosea 4 6 states, My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people can turn this around. Proverbs 4 7 states, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot, Brother Reggie, and Brother Ralph. 
The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-253-7263. That's 215-253-7263. The listen-only line, if you don't have computer access, access to a smartphone or iPad or any uh, device, is 559-726-1300. That's 559-726-1300. And that access code is nine five eight five nine zero and pound. Again, that access code uh, to listen um, is nine five eight five nine zero and pound. We're streaming live. Two ways you can get that: uh, go to h uh, www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and hit the green button to listen live or if you have your uh, iPad, your your tablet, your desktop your iPhone uh, just download the TuneIn app if you don't already have it and go to the search engine and type in time for an awakening radio program there you'll see the icon and you can listen live right from your device Again, that's two ways to pick it up in a live program. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. That's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening is also on Facebook, a fan page. Just go to the Facebook search engine, type in Time for an Awakening radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by Brother Reg. And before you leave that page, just hit that like button. It's time for an Awakening Radio program on Facebook. Tonight, we have a special guest that will join us this evening. Activist, associate professor, and chair of the Department of African American Studies at Georgia State University, and author of the book, We Will Shoot Back, Dr. Ankiele Omowali Yemoja will be joining us. On the heels of the 50th anniversary of Selma to Montgomery March, the movement was not always about nonviolence. We'll talk about the real backbone of our people's fight against domestic apartheid and terrorism with our guests after we take a brief break from our sponsors. Our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. <laughs> Everybody is here. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowner's insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 215 215- 215 
215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley antiquity to the present our people need to develop a new paradigm it's time for an awakening sundays 7 p.m with your host elliot welcome back to time for an awakening and before we get started this evening with our special guest uh brother reg brother ralph any announcements community announcements anything of that nature not at all i just uh our guests just liked uh, our post, so I guess we're ready to go. <laughs> uh, before we get started this evening, I want to restate what I stated when I announced our guest coming on. Activist, associate professor, and chair of the Department of African American Studies at Georgia State University and author of the book that we'll be stu- discussing this evening, we will shoot back Dr. Akiele Omowali Umoja. On the heels of the 50th anniversary of the Selma to Montgomery March, the movement was not always about nonviolence, as we've been told. We'll talk about the real backbone of our people's fight against domestic apartheid and terrorism with our guest this evening, Dr. Yamoja. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you, how are you doing, Brother Elliot? I'm, I'm all right, sir. You, we're happy to have you on time for an awakening this evening and with our co-host, Brother Reg and Brother Ralph. How you doing, Dr. Mojo? I'm doing well, doing well. Uh, Dr. Mojo, before we get started this evening, pronounce your name for us, for the listening audience. It's Akinyele Omowale Umoja. I had it right. (laughs) I had it right. Before we get started this evening, Dr. Mojo, your book is very interesting. It goes into an area of our past that, uh, to be honest, I knew little about. And I don't know whether our audience knows a lot about it, but we're going to find out about it this evening. Before we talk about the book, uh, we will shoot back. Uh, you know, I read in the foreword, uh, Dr. Emoji, that your folks were from the Delta region of Mississippi. So what inspired you to write this book? Uh, my, well, my father, my father was born in the Delta region of Mississippi. Okay. Uh-huh. That's my connection there. I'm actually grew up, was born in Los Angeles, California, grew up in Compton, California. And there's a couple of things that connected me uh, to even desiring to do the research there. Number one was, as I mentioned, my father being from there, and he told me a story when I was real young about um, his him seeing a black man's body hanging from a water tower in uh, Alligator Lake, Mississippi. My father was a sharecropper, was a, from a sharecropping family. My grandfather, upon seeing that, went to get his rifle, and he was going to shoot the first white person he saw. And so my uh, father said the family tackled my grandfather and disarmed him. And that, you know, on one hand, I was very prideful. My grandfather was 
fight back and, you know, retaliate because I never heard about black people in the South doing that. Number two, uh, I understood the fear and intimidation of family felt. Um, now, so that, but that's one motivator. Another motivator was the fact that when I, you mentioned I was an activist, I've been an activist all my adult life since I was 18 years old. Um, and so like in the 1970s, as I became to be an activist and I started to travel, I began to meet people who would tell me stories, meet people from the South who began to tell me stories about their activism. Uh, so that Dr. Yamoja? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, yes, I can, sir, can I, you hear me? I can hear you. Your voice seems to be going in and out. Um, okay, hold on. Let me do this. Can you hear me better oh, now? Oh, great. That's great. Okay, so I heard these stories from people who um, were very active in the movement down south. And then uh, one brother, I actually went down there and met this brother, Alfred Skip Robinson who's talked about in the eighth, uh, eighth chapter of my book. So um, observing that and knowing that I hadn't been taught that in school and even the black studies programs that I was enrolled in didn't have much of that information, um, it, I knew that that was something that needed to be talked about, and I felt uh, because of my relationships with folks, I was, I was um, equipped to get the information and to share it with the world. And so that's basically what happened. That, so those things, my own family history, as well as um, people in the movement, one sister in particular, Dara Abubakari, and her son, Walter Collins. Uh, Dara Abubakari was associated with the Republic of New Africa. Uh, she was also a, a child of Garveyites, grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana. She uh, passed about five or six years ago. But she was one of the people who... Uh, told me some of the stories. So her, Walter, who uh, was a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, had gone to prison for uh, resisting the draft during the Vietnam War. And also Alfred Skip Robinson, who organized the United League of Mississippi in Marshall County, Mississippi. But throughout northern Mississippi, he organized boycotts. And I actually saw him handle guns. <laughs> so... You know, those folks, all three of them who are now deceased, I was blessed to meet them, and they shared stories with me that became the basis of this study. You know, the book focuses in on, on Mississippi, but uh, mm -hmm. we know that a lot of the uh, resistance uh, kind of poured in or, or was associated with other areas, and we'll touch on that in conversation uh, uh, later this evening. But uh, I want to get started. It, you know, what I like about the book, it kind of focuses in on people in history that uh, that resisted before it kind of mm -hmm. spun off into groups that resisted. In Chapter 1, you mm -hmm. speak of several folks that uh, resisted. And I want to start with uh, the person you mentioned in Chapter 1, uh, State Senator Charles Caldwell. You talked about mm -hmm. initially his murder, but talk about what basically led to his murder. I think, uh, as I recall, the Republican convention was uh, attacked by uh, whites, and uh, mm -hmm. Mr. Caldwell formed a militia. But talk about what he did and what led to the murder, which you state in the book. Well, put it in the co context for your listening audience. 
uh, Charles Caldwell was a brother who had been enslaved in Mississippi in a place and um, was now Hines County, Mississippi, where Jackson, the capital seat, is. Um, during uh, the end of slavery, he became a landowner. He, re- he began to organize in the community, um, and he was also a politician. And you mentioned Republican convention because we've got to re- recognize at that time during Reconstruction, the Democratic Party was a party of the South. It, uh, you can go to a, a Democratic Party meeting in the South during that time. It'd be the like, same like going to a Klan meeting. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Seriously, I was not, yes. you know, that, that's the reality. Mm-hmm. There were paramilitary groups associated, white supremacist paramilitary groups associated with the Democratic Party. And so um, the Republican Party, which is a party in the North, they knew they couldn't get support from the former Confederates, so they tried to recruit black folk. And Charles Caldwell was one of those people who they aligned themselves with. He became a politician. Um, Since they needed to defend the Reconstruction government, uh, black people were allowed to be armed by the the federal Union government, uh, the North, and, you know, Andrew Johnson, the president, and all them. And so uh, when they did that, they were able to defend themselves against these white supremacists at that time. He uh, actually um, put down, through his black militia, put down some of the um, white supremacist organizations when they were trying to take over government and when they were trying to terrorize black people to polls and things of that nature in the 1870s, early 1870s. But what happened was, as as we know, black people were betrayed during Reconstruction. We were um, guns were taken from us at a certain point, and so Charles Caldwell um, they re- wanted to get rid of his leadership. So a plot was hatched to have him come downtown on Christmas Day downtown in Bolton, Mississippi. He came downtown to have a drink with a man he thought was his friend, a white man. And when that happened, uh, he was um, ambushed and assassinated on the streets of Bolton, Mississippi. Uh, now, that's again, that's another story that I didn't know about, and that's one I was blessed to meet, uh, Baba Imari Obadeli, who was a uh, freedom fighter in his own right, uh, some considered a father of the modern reparations movement. He shared that story with me, but I was able to, you know, again, get the the um, support, the do- support documentation to back that up. It wasn't just a story I he- heard and I ran off with. Mm-hmm. But you know, there, there's a memorial to uh, Charles Caldwell, and he's he's listed as one of the most important Reconstruction um, politicians, as well as how he was assassinated in the streets of Baltimore, Mississippi, on Christmas Day, I believe, 1871. You 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 wrote that uh, I think they shot through the window, and uh, and he right. was hit. And they came in to try to finish him off, and he said, uh, "Don't do it in here. You take me to the street and shoot me like a man." I mean, he he was right. to his right. dying breath. He wanted to face these guys face to face. No doubt. And so he's one of many of our Reconstruction leaders who fought for our freedom, but were targeted. So if you consider in the 1960s, the U.S. government had what was called the COINTELPRO program that targeted black leadership and black uh, black um, grassroots organizers 
And so he would be a predecessor for that in 1871 to take out key black leadership who was fighting to defend our people and to lead us toward some sort of, you know, empowerment. You also talk in Chapter 1 about uh, two cultural constructs that developed out of slavery. Uh, You talked about the bad Negro and the Br'er Rabbit. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about that. Well, the bad Negro, you know, we know that quite so well, particularly in our today's rap culture. We got brothers who talk bad and let everybody know they're bad, right? You see them coming. They let you know. And, uh, you know, we've had leaders like that, too, who speak strong. Like Malcolm X would have been considered the bad Negro, right? Mm -hmm. And he let you know, you know, um, if you come at him, he'll he'll retaliate. It'll be even Steven. He believed in self-defense. People like Robert F. Williams, they who openly proclaimed we'll meet violence for violence. But we also had a tradition of the trickster, people who said, you know, they're for peace, but they were prepared to fight back, you know, or pre- prepared to strike back. And so we have a tradition of that in our movement being deceptive. In fact, you know, some people say uh, the the great uh, military general uh, leader of the the Chinese people, Sun Tzu, said the art of war is deception. So we've had a tradition of black folks. And you find more of that in Mississippi than you'll find the outright bad Negro. There are bad Negroes. And there were people who spoke and challenged and said they would not be defeated openly. They just call them crazy, uh, and I, you know, mm-hmm. N-word. I won't spell it out or say it on your radio broadcast. But um, you have people like that, but you also had the people who were more deceptive. And so we talk about that in the book. So, for instance, Negger Evers at a certain point uh, could not, because of his position at NAACP, talk about armed resistance, but he practiced it. And he would tell people, even though he didn't speak about it out loud from a stage publicly, he would tell people if they were nonviolent that they were crazy. His widow, um, Murley Evers, would later say that uh, he was preparing for what race war, even for building a nation of black people that came down for, to that. So, um, But, you know, when we look and hear about Megger Evers, that's rarely referred to. Yes, and that, that that's why we want to kind of focus in on a lot of these men tonight on our program. You, you, you talked in chapter one also about Isaiah Montgomery, the founder of a historic black town in Mississippi, uh, Mount Bayou. Right. And you call him an, an accommodationist. Uh, talk, mm-hmm. talk about why, Dr. Moja. Well, in 1890, Isaiah Montgomery, to get support from prominent whites and white supremacists for the maintenance of his black town, Mount Bayou, agreed to support the disenfranchisement of black folks. And so he uh, he comes out of the same tradition that, you know, we commonly think of someone like Booker T. Washington, who um, make alliances with powerful whites for, for the white agenda, but to try to get some things for themselves. And then promoting the whole idea that black people shouldn't be aggressive or militant or insurgent in fighting for our own rights. Um, so it's the same type of strategy uh, that Isaiah Montgomery 
engaged in the Booker T. Washington. And he's a he's a contemporary of Booker T. Washington, right? Because this is 1895 years later. Washington would give the what he call what we call the Atlanta Exposition or Atlanta Compromise speech here in Atlanta. Okay. So there, there was accepting of segregation and not advancing uh, black people uh, fighting for the right to vote and things of that nature, or to even uh, compete with whites economically, but to accept certain niches in the, in the economy to build, and hopefully the whites would accept you in the future. Some people consider that a pragmatic approach, given the fact it wouldn't have been possible for black people to seize power in the time, that time just coming out of uh, decades out of enslavement. But the other other way to think about it is uh, the great Ida B. Wells oftentimes talked about she had some friends who were just trying to move slow, be responsible, not challenge white folks for power uh, or political power in particular. And they were lynched because they became successful businessmen. Some whites thought that black people shouldn't be at that level. And so uh, she said that we had to fight anyway uh, because nothing was going to save us but ourselves. And so um, even though I, some people argue Booker T. Washington or Isaiah Montgomery might have been pra- pragmatists, uh, through Ida B. Wells and her examples, we see that if black people just were successful, some people thought that, you know, we shouldn't have any economic success. We shouldn't have stability. And so some white folks were threatened by that. And so we always had to be in a position, uh, given that from Ida B. Wells' perspective, to defend ourselves and to be vigorous advocates for our own human rights. Before I move into uh, to, uh, touching on some things in Chapter 2, the end of Chapter 1, or midway of Chapter 1, you, you mentioned several folks, and I'm just uh, going to, touch on them, maybe three of them to pull on your memory to give our people a little background on each one of them. Sandy Thompson, in 1920, he was a black farmer. Talk about the story of Sandy Thompson. Wow, wow, you might know some of these better than I do, but I think you're talking about, because I can't remember exactly what town Sandy Thompson is. Okay. But I did give you a, a series of people in the first chapter, who resisted. Go ahead. Adventure. That'll be great. And, the, and the, uh, the the context of that is, I talk about, in the, there's a certain period of Mississippi history. Uh, historians call this period of time in the south of the Deer period. And the Deer period is supposed to be the low period in black history. It's after Reconstruction. It's after, um, uh, what do you call it? It's, it's, it's after slavery. It's definitely after slavery. It's after Reconstruction. And before, some historians take it to 1920, but I would argue for Mississippi it goes all the way to the 19, early 1950s. Okay. And during this period, you don't have a lot of political activity. The NAACP tries to get established. They run it out of town. You know, uh, you do have uh, Garvey Movement organizations that are established in the South, and particularly in Mississippi and Louisiana. But what happens in those cases, you don't have a lot of collective resistance. But you do have examples of individual black people fighting back. So Sandy Thompson was one of those people. The one who's most prominent on my mind is Joe Pullen. Okay. And Joe Pullen was uh, actually um, uh, revered. His case was revered 
by the Marcus Garvey movement. It talked about it in the Garvey paper, the Negro World. Joe Pullen was actually, uh, and this is typical of many of the conflicts that occurred. He was a sharecropper. Um, his uh, uh, a white man had accused him of of um, not, you know, they had an economic, well, they had, excuse me, they had a, a disagreement about the work and about his compensation. But just the fact he was had a disagreement with the white man, the white man came to his house to confront him. And Joe Pullen had his hands in his pocket when the white man came to his house. And the white man demanded that he take his hands out of his pockets. He thought that was something that was disrespectful. Okay. And Joe Pullen pulls out a gun and shoots him. And that just creates a whole incident uh, where after he shoots a white man, other whites uh, come for him to get him. And he, there's a gun battle that ensues. They go out and uh, the whites bring whites from neighboring counties, and along with white white reinforcements from neighboring counties, they also brought uh, a Gatling gun, which is you know the the uh, the early machine gun, automatic weapon. Mm-hmm. And but what they did was he hid. Uh, he was able to hide himself, and they poured gasoline in the area and burned him to death. Uh, but um, Joe Pullen would actually, people like Fannie Lou Hamer would talk about, he was he served as an inspiration to them, the fact he was willing as a sharecropper to fight back. And, of course, I said the Garvey movement held him as a hero. I'd say it ends in the 1950s, and you had a case in the 1950s of Eddie Noel yes. in Holmes County, Mississippi. Eddie Noel um Actually, he got into a dispute and uh, with the white store owner, who, who Eddie Noel had felt had disrespected his wife, and um, uh, Eddie Noel went out to his car. The white store owner followed him out to the car, and he was able. Uh, Eddie Noel got to his gun and was able to kill the white store owner. Uh, when they came to Eddie Noel's house. Uh, posse came to get him. He ambushed him, killed several of them, and then he went out to the woods. And they were uh, when people went out to the woods to try to go get him, people got picked off. Uh, they finally, uh, it must you know, it's believed that Eddie Noel was receiving support from people in the community. They began to harass them so much that uh, uh, his people in the community that he he finally made a deal and turned himself in. But the deal was made, and Eddie Noel, rather than go into prison, was sent to a mental hospital. And he would at some point escape from the mental hospital. Um, Now, here's the trip about that story. Uh, Eddie Noel, uh, and I don't know if I say this in the book. There's an article on it, but I couldn't get the article in time for publication of my article. But Eddie Noel was actually, his grandfather was a white man was the governor of Mississippi. <laughs> so one of the reasons the deal was worked out was also because of the white folks in his family. Okay. And it goes away from the, the typical pattern. Um, uh, but you had you, you also, when I mentioned him escaping too, uh, there was something also, uh, another dimension of the story, I don't go into much, but it's what was called the Negro Underground. 
And so you had, uh, called at that time, the Negro Underground. You had a lot of black people who were involved in these incidents who would escape Mississippi because of, of the use of the underground that was a lot of times connected to a large organization, um, secret societies and such. Okay. Uh, before, before, so, yeah. So you did have individual resistance during that period of time that we don't hear about. You know, civil rights legislation, or we don't hear about demonstrations or many boycotts and things of that nature. But what I do argue, and this is an important thing I think to remember about that period, mm-hmm. is that black people, even though there's not a lot of political activity, they're building churches, they're building their families, they're building businesses. They're building these lodges, and that provides the basis with the resources they're able to accumulate and the networks they organize to have a full-fledged movement in the 1950s. Yeah, and and uh, I think Chapter 2 kind of opens the door for organized resistance. But, but before That's I right. go into Chapter 2, you mentioned a young man, and this person became prominent later on. But as a young man, you told his story in Chapter One of C.O. Chin. Oh my God! And you, and you talked about how his family owned, I think, 150 acres of land uh, at the time, right. and they had a rule. I forgot how many. It was it was a significant amount of land. Yeah, they had a rule in the town. I think that blacks couldn't come in town during the week and wear a white shirt because they had to right. show that they were somebody's laborer. But he that would come in town with all, all over the state. Where you talk about his story. I'm, don't talk about what happened later on because I want to touch on some of that. But talk about that incident yeah. when he was a young man. He's a young man. I thought it was like 250 acres of land. It, it was whatever. quite a bit. His, his family were significant landowners in Madison County, Mississippi, just north of Jackson, Mississippi. And during the week, as you mentioned, uh, they didn't want blacks in town wearing dress clothes. You know, you had to be wearing laborer clothes because you're supposed to be working for, particularly for a white man. And so, uh, CO, whose family was prominent, they, um, he wore dress clothes during the week and he didn't care. So a white man approached his mother and said, the CO needs to be, get a job. He needs to be doing something during the week. Uh, he doesn't need to be out here with people seeing him like that. And so he, uh, she mentioned to the CEO, and he says uh, to his mother, Mama, does that man owe you money? You owe that man money, brother. And he, she said, no, we don't owe him anything. So he got his 357 Magnum, I believe it was, and he walks up on the white man and said, look, sir, if you ever approach my mother again, one of us is going to be dead. After that happened, C.O. developed a reputation of that this Negro was crazy. <laughs> so black folks and white folks left C.O. Chen alone because they thought he was crazy. Okay, uh, we, we, and this would aid him, as you, we will talk about much later on. Okay. His reputation uh, was persisted as a grown man, and uh, he was an important part of the movement in that part of Mississippi as well as the state. Before, I want to get Brother Edge and Brother Rapp in the conversation, and, uh, and we're going to take some calls shortly, open up the phones. But uh, you talk about the rise in Chapter 2 of the RCNL, the Negro 
uh, uh, leadership uh, council. Regional council, Negro leadership. Yes, and the uh, and uh, and the rise of excuse me. Mm-hmm, no problem, and the rise of Dr. T. M. Howard and his mm-hmm. transformation from accommodist accommodationist to activist. Talk about the organization and Dr. Howard before I uh, pass the mic to Dr. Reg Rao. Excuse me, I got coughing. No problem. All right. Um, TRM Howard, just to give you a background, uh, the brother's from Kentucky. Um, He would uh, become educated and get a medical degree, became a doctor, moved to Mississippi. In Mississippi, and particularly in Mount Bayou, the same town we said, it was founded uh, by Montgomery, all black town. He was brought in there by a secret society calling itself the Knights of Tabor, which were very important in terms of the development of, of that town. As I mentioned, the lodges and secret organizations were very important. They had pooled their resources and developed their own hospital. Mm-hmm. They brought Dr. Howard in in the 1940s. And Dr. Howard will become one of the wealthiest men in the state of Mississippi. Nineteen by nineteen forty six, uh, one national magazine. Uh, your older listeners would know the Saturday Evening Post was very popular. Uh, it said that Dr. Howard was a credit to his race because you know he was using his resources to develop our community and wasn't trying to integrate with white folks, which white people loved, right? He wasn't trying to integrate with them. And so, for instance, he had developed the first pool for black people in the state of Mississippi. You know, uh, our our children used to have to swim in the streams and rivers and lakes. And this was a problem because in Mississippi, particularly in the Delta, you got you have alligators, rattlesnakes, and everything in those lakes, which is a dangerous area for kids to swim. So he developed the first not on swimming pool, first park, <coughs> excuse me, for black people in the state of Mississippi. They thought that was what, that was good. And so 1946, that's what they believe. Um, he created his own secret society, <coughs> excuse me, called the Order of Friendship. The Order of Friendship um, developed their own medical clinic that he was a part of. And then in 1952, the Order of Friendship organized this regional council, Negro Leadership, to advocate black rights. First, they were seen to be accommodationists because they, uh, you know, they weren't, they were just, <clears throat> they weren't calling for voting rights or political power. But then they came out with a campaign, don't buy gas where you can't use the restroom, a definite attack on segregation. But not only did they do that, but some of his membership began to start their own filling stations. For instance, uh, Brother Amzi Moore, uh, who we'll talk, hopefully we'll talk about later, most, most created his own gas station in, in Mississippi. Uh, so black people couldn't use a restroom or white gas stations, too. Well, let's create our own gas station. And so um, uh, that was one of the things that began to happen. And, but that's also taking money away from whites. The other thing they began to call for is that black people should be able to vote and have the right to vote. They were registering people to vote. And they called for 
that said that ultimately Mississippi should have its own black congressman if they have the right to vote. These things scared the hell out of white people. And so the, uh, there were threats on the regional council and Dr. Howard, but he had very good security, we would say. He could pay for security on one hand because he was a man of means, but then other people would volunteer to protect him. And as well as he was armed himself, he would have secret compartments in his car, recognizing even though the gun laws are liberal in Mississippi and he could carry, but there were attempts to disarm him. So he had, like, uh, secret compartments in his car to conceal weapons, uh, particularly handguns, when they tried to uh, get at him. And his security, again, when you went to his, you, sometimes you couldn't approach him without being searched, as well as, um, you know, there were bodyguards at his clinic. Uh, the, the the mother of Emmett Till mentioned that when she went to stay with Dr. Howard during the trial of the murders in Emmett Till, um, she, they would have, there was a machine gun in his house, and there were people there to protect her at all times and to protect other people there, other dignitaries who were staying with Dr. Howard. But just Dr. Howard on a regular basis, she said the people in my bayou didn't tolerate any invasion of any kind. And so uh, Dr. Howard was certainly a freedom fighter. We all also should note that Dr. Howard used his resources to uh, um, pay for the investigation to figure out who lynched Emmett Till and how that occurred. In fact, other members of the regional council, <clears throat> Amzie Moore, who I mentioned earlier, Megger Evers, who I mentioned earlier, they dressed up like sharecroppers along with the regional director of the NAACP. Um, man, my, my, my memory just, just left me in one second. But <clears throat> Ruby Hurley, excuse me, they should. They all dressed up like like sharecroppers, and they went into the Mississippi Delta, talked to sharecroppers, talked to other people to get the information, to so the authorities could prosecute uh, the murders of Emmett Till. But as as you know, with an all white jury, black people being denied to vote, so we couldn't get on a jury on a uh, we couldn't be we weren't eligible to be on the jury since we weren't eligible to vote. All right, jury released the. Uh, the criminals who uh, murdered Emmett Till. We, we That's see that, Dr. Howard. We see that later on, Dr. Howard, uh, because of his activism, had to be forced into exile. By uh, Right. It was so, many, so much threats upon him. His wife uh, didn't feel comfortable living in state. So he went into exile living in Chicago, where he maintained his activism there. And and then we see the emergence of uh, Mega and Charles Evers. But, you know, before I pass the mic to Brother Rage, I did want to mention something because it kind of uh, coincides with what you're talking about. We had Miss Coley Clark on our program a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. which was uh, mm -hmm. Mega Evers' mm -hmm. field secretary, if I'm not mistaken. And, mm -hmm. and she talked about, you know, because I talked about the, the danger of those men uh, in their lives being in jeopardy every day. And mm -hmm. I asked her about you know, what she felt about uh, being in danger. And she said, well, to be honest, she said, when we would go home, I, I always felt safe because she said her her parents, all her relatives, owned guns and they were prepared to use them. So it mm -hmm. kind of, it it it, you know, when I re was reading your book, it kind of brought back to my mind the things that Miss Clark talked about on our program. 
But uh, right. I'm, and so our, our image of the movement, and when we see movies, even Selma, about the move, movement, we don't see that particular aspect. We don't I see like Selma, yeah, not yes. just in the move, movie. But, um, you know, in terms of the level of uh, armed self-defense and armed resistance in our community is not really oftentimes projected. So we get a different image of what was going on and how black people were still ready to defend and protect themselves. Brother Reg? Okay, let's go to a brief break and then come back. All right, we'll, we'll, yeah, that's what we'll do. We'll, uh, we'll take a brief break. And when we come back, uh, I'm passing the mic to Brother Reg, Brother Ralph, and you can get involved in the conversation with activist, associate professor, and chair of the Department of African American Studies at Georgia State University and author of the book we're discussing tonight. We will shoot back. Dr. Ankiele Omowale Umoja is with us this evening, and you can join the conversation at 215-253-7263. That's 215-253-7263. We'll be right back after a brief break. tuned in to the black talk radio network for podcasts and live program scheduling visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com all insurance incorporated an african-american owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years located at 231 southeastern road in glenside pa with other offices in germantown and west philadelphia call now for commercial insurance quotes homeowners insurance quotes automobile insurance quotes notary and tax services representing over 15 major a-rated insurance companies offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote call this number two one That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. One day when the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be ours. Oh, one day when the war is won, we will be sure, we will be No man, no weapon 
formed against yes glory is destined everyday women and men become legends sins that go against our skin become blessings the movement is a rhythm to us freedom is like religion to us Justice is just a position in us. Justice for all just ain't specific enough. One son died, the spirit is revisiting us. True and living, living in us. Resistance is us. That's why Rosa sat on the bus. That's why we walk through Ferguson with our hands up. When it go down, we woman and man up. They say stay down and we stand up. Shots, we on the ground. The camera panned up. King pointed to the mountaintop and we ran up. One day. When the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be ours, oh, glory, 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 now the war is not over, victory isn't won, but we'll fight on to the finish, and then we'll Every man, woman, and child. Even Jesus got his crown in front of a crowd. They march with the torch. We gon' run with it now. Never look back. We done gone hundreds of miles from dark roads, heroes to become a hero. Facing the league of justice, his power was the people. Enemy is lethal, but King became Rico. Saw the face of Jim Crow under a ball ego. The biggest weapon is to stay peaceful. We sing. Our music is the cuts that we bleed through. Somewhere in a dream, we had an epiphany. Now we right the wrongs in history. One day when the glory comes. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. And we're joined this evening in conversation with activist associate professor and chair of the Department of African American Studies at Georgia State University and the author of the book, We Will Shoot Back, Dr. Ankieli. Omawali Omoja is with us in conversation this evening. And uh, Brother Rich, take it. Brother Umoja, I'm, I'm really enjoying the information that you're laying out for the audience. I think it's uh, necessary and needed when we're talking about understand, understanding things that have happened in our history and getting the full impact. It's strange to me that anyone would believe that black people, whether as a group or individually, didn't have enough love and care for their spouses and children and, and, and relatives that they wouldn't take up arms because there's only a natural uh, thing or propensity to have love for your people and want to protect the people that you care about. Can you, can you uh, explain to the listening audience why this, why these untruths still persist about what's actually happened during the civil rights movement and before? Well, I think, number one, there's a fear of black people uh, possessing guns. It always has been one in this country, right? Um, you know, one of the things when our ancestors were enslaved that uh, was insisted that we not have guns because it's always been a fear of us retaliating 
And so then I think of, um, it's been a kind of, uh, because of that fear, it's almost been an expectation that some of us have even accepted that we, we shouldn't be armed. And we shouldn't be ready to protect and defend ourselves. And we don't have that right like other human beings have that right, right? Because, you know, it's normal. Uh, you know, when, you know, just when U.S. was attacked during 9-11, they thought of retaliating. It wasn't even self-defense, protecting themselves. They thought of retaliation. And that was considered a normal response. Um so, but just the thought that black people would would protect and defend themselves it just scares the hell out of America. Um, so I think it's because of that, and you know them re- like reinforcing that black people should not try to defend or protect ourselves in any shape, form, or fashion. I think that's one piece of that. Now, the other thing, understanding that dilemma during the civil rights movement. Several of our people, even people who carry guns, was packing every day. They uh, there there was a period of time in the movement, the early part of the movement, where people uh, did not project that we had people who were defending other people in the community, right? Uh, so, and nonviolence was put out front because the strategy was they hoped that they were going to get support an intervention from the federal government and they hoped they were going to get support from northern white liberals and so the thought was if we don't show the protective element of our community the self-defense arm of our movement then we'll get this white support but when the cavalry didn't come that's when i think the paradigm shift and i argue that's like late mid to late 64 in the 65, you got the emergence of the Deacons for Defense and other elements. And it was during that time where the title of the book comes forth, where Charles Edwards would publicly state that um, I had, he had the greatest respect for Dr. Martin Luther King, but nonviolence won't work in Mississippi. He said, if a white man shoots at us, we will shoot back. And that kind of reflected a sentiment of the movement at that particular time that you couldn't depend on the federal government to protect us. We're going to have to protect ourselves, as you stated, like other people do, right? Well, like other people get to protect their children and their spouses, you know, and their neighbors and loved ones in the community. Other people are considered to have a right, but we aren't considered, you know, it's considered that we should just take it, you know, and and if, if, if we respond in any way, to uh, people attacking us, then we are the perpetrators. And so, um, uh, you know, that's I think those that's the reason, the background, okay. to why we had that perception. So even when we have, um, um, I'll give you an example from the movie Sama. Mm-hmm. Um, they show something that actually happened when um, – they chased people, and I hope I'm not doing a spoiler alert for people. When they chase people <laughs> after they've beaten them, back to uh, uh, across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, back into the black community, and back to the neighborhood that surrounds the Brown AME Chapel, um, Brown Chapel AME Church, rather. Uh, this in the middle at that time of some low-income housing. Now they show Andy Young saying to a brother who's getting ready 
to retaliate against or to, you know in a uh, a non nonviolent way against you know uh these uh state troopers these white supremacists who come into the black community and Andy Young as it says during that time told black people don't respond let's we got to be nonviolent okay but the other part of that story is uh and this comes from it's in the book our soul is rested by Howard Raines, which was the oral history. Uh, and a white, the white police officer, a police official, really, Wilson Baker, who was the Selma police chief, so Selma uh, director of public safety, rather, he said that black people were coming out of their homes with guns, with knives. Uh, people were throwing rocks and bottles at the state troopers as they came into the black community and he said he would go up to the Jim Clark who led the white supremacists uh, 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 state police, state troopers and he told them look these folks are coming out their homes to fight us and it's going to be a blood blast and it won't just be black blood dripping it'll be our blood and that was the crucial factor they got the state troopers to lead that day when they saw black people ready to fight back. And so we got one side of the story in the movie. And again, I like the movie. Don't, don't get me wrong, but we don't have the other side of what was the role of black people being willing to fight to back up the, excuse my language, but these crackers who are coming there to uh, assault our people during that particular time. Yeah. You know, it's very ironic before I transition and, and let Ralph get into conversation, what I'm about to say, usually I leave this up to Ralph and Elliot, but when you look at the formation of this country and the separation for Europe, it was done through violence. When I look at the United States, when I look at the founding fathers of this country, everything was done through violence and I, I just, and, and it was through resistance, whether there was knives musket guns or whatever the case may be it was done through any sort of resistance was due f- through violence so i think it's just like a, a strange paradox when it comes to black people and how they have to engage that they're supposed to even this this engage with white people or, or engage in oppression it's supposed to be this thing with hands up i think the most militant people are the people who formed this country and they still show that they're the most violent they're the, they're the ones that are ready to, at any point in time, they'll talk for a minute, and if you don't acquiesce to what they want, what are they going to do? They're going to bomb you or kill you, drone bombs. And I'm just saying that this is the type of uh, dialogue that some of the younger children, they need to, 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 to have an understanding. Because I think uh, a lot of them, when they think about civil rights movement, they look at it as being sanitized, whether they could express it or not. That I, I even when I'm uh, looking at it, I just can't believe from all the stories that I've heard from people from that live down south, telling me how their how the the clan came into their yard, burnt crosses, and their grandfather or their uncle shot somebody, and they had to they had to uh, leave down south to come up north. You hear these stories for so many black people, it just doesn't make any sense that there, no black people did anything to protect themselves. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, brother, I um, agree with that sentiment. Um, 
you know, it's, it's been a lot of hypocrisy. You know, like we're told to be nonviolent on one hand, but as you see it, uh, this country was built on violence. But I kind of don't, I think that violence that was exhibited, it's the violence of empire, it's the violence of trying to oppress people, you know, the extermination, you know, the, the foundation of this empire we live in is the extermination of uh, the indigenous people and the taking of their land, occupation of their land, and the enslavement of our ancestors. On the other hand, uh, what I might make a slight tweak, I make a distinction between that and resistance. Resistance is when Native Americans, indigenous people fought against that, or when our people, uh, was, you know, fought against slavery and opposed it. Uh, I distinguish that resistance from their violence, you know, against our people, their terrorism against our people. I agree with, but, I agree know, I with you wanna, on that, my brother. I just, I I just, I just want to, you know, we want to distinguish that because we're talking about something different. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a right to protect our families. We have a right, you know, people are now talking about Black Lives Matter. we got a right to protect our humanity. And then the people don't have the right to, like, snatch our lives. They don't have the right to take our lives so they can get land or financially exploit them. That's a violation of our human rights, and that's a violation of, you know, anything that's spiritual, that's anti-spiritual. And just to add to your point, I don't believe that you wanting to protect yourself in any sort of matter against unjust laws or unjust people that you're militant or you're violent either. I think that's a a misnomer or a label that's usually... Uh, placed upon black people in casual conversations. And I think we bought that notion wholesale, you know, the bulk of us. Right, 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 right. Ralph, jump on in. Yeah, I appreciate your point. Yeah, Dr. Mojo, I'm glad that you're on because uh, uh, you're putting the puzzles together for us and our listening audience. Um, My cousin has sent me your book, a while ago because I told him that that nonviolent stuff of the 60s and the 50s never made sense to me. And I've been saying that for years. I've been condemned for it. I've been criticized for it. But it just never made sense. And what did make sense when Malcolm X did say, uh, when Malcolm said, are you still there, sir? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you too. Okay. When Malcolm X said, um, I don't call it violence when it's self-defense. I call that intelligence. Intelligence, right. You know, and that made all the sense in the world. They never talked about Charles Evers, but you bring him up. They never talk about Charles Evers, said he wanted vengeance. And he said even though he had the highest respect for Dr. Martin Luther King, he wanted vengeance for his brother's death, and he wanted an armed resistance because he says that nonviolent stuff doesn't work in Mississippi. And... um, to bring up what Brother Reg was talking about, you know, we had Dr. Jared Ball on, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. And mm-hmm. I'm looking at this propaganda machine that's, that's, that's coming down the pipe now. And he even told us that propaganda is a sign of warfare. Now, if you look at these movies, 12 Years a Slave, Django, The Butler, The Help, I mean, all these Selma. And, I mean, they're constantly coming. I saw a movie last week called Whitewater 
where the main theme of this movie was this little boy wanted to drink from a white's only water fountain. And when I see stuff like that, I said, you know what? The same things that occurred back then, they're trying to like subliminally put us right back there right now. Because I hear a lot of these so-called misleaders, people on radio stations, and they're usually Democratic Party co-ops. They're telling the black community to turn in your weapons, take it to Walmart and get $50 for it. But yet you see the other society, the other culture, man, they got stockpiles of weapons in their houses. So what are we preparing for, uh, Dr. Mojo? You know what I mean? Because I'm seeing all this. I'm seeing it. And I know I can't be by myself. They're telling us to be subservient. Uh, like Scotty Reed always says, you know, slavery never ended because it's just a prison industrial complex right now. What are we being set up for? Because I'm, I, I read history to see how much it never really changed. And I just wanted to get your uh, view on that. So the question is, what are we being set up for? What are we being set up for? The turning our firearms, the turning our firearms for a Walmart coupon while everybody else is stockpiling them. It's actually nothing new. Um, As I mentioned from the, excuse me, from the inception of this country, it's always been attempts to disarm black people. Now, I will say this, that black people, are in a precarious situation right now. Why do I say that? The people I, I, um, I wrote this are people who are subjects in my book. When I interview folks, you know, they learn how to shoot from their parents, from elders in the community. And they were kind of grounded in protecting their community. Even some of the elderly sisters I'm, I talked to, said they were taught how to shoot by their fathers to protect themselves from white rapists. Uh, but, see, I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, said I grew up in Compton, California. I'm 60 years old, uh, 1972, I graduated from high school. Uh, my last few years in school, that was when we had the Crips and the Bloods emerge. Uh-huh. And we had a lot of stories in our community about, you know, just guns just popping up all over the place. And we even thought, you know, some people were placing guns in our community. And, of course, guns in our community from the underground economy. So on one hand, we have the most, I think, unstable elements of our community. Right. uh, With guns, right? And so some people do want gun control. I don't think gun legislation solves the problem. And here, let me hear me out on this, because you know when people got get weapons, they're not getting them because they're going to the gun store and buying them. Now right. I am proposed to people who got, you know, history of mental illness, people with you know substance abuse issues, you know, because that ain't a gun and alcoholic ain't a good mix, uh-huh. you know. But uh, but on the other hand, what would solve this problem of? You know, uh, what we call talk about in places like Chicago, where a lot of our youth are being murdered by other youth in our community, or we have, you know, domestic violence where people are shot in our community, shot and killed. I think that the problem will be more solved by entrepreneurship, by, you know, us getting, creating employment, economic cooperatives, things like that. 
in our community, of us rebuilding and restoring our families, revitalizing our families again, by organizing our communities and organizing our youth. Because I'm also old enough to remember where we had gangs or street organizations, I should say, prior to the Crips and Bloods. But when we had the Black Panther Party, the Malcolm X Foundation, the us organization, other black power organizations, we didn't have, you know, people went into those organizations and were more about consciousness and self-development and self-determination. So I think um, that's the answer to that problem. We need a strong movement. And if we're conscious, then, see, it's, it's a question we just got to, as Malcolm X say, think for ourselves. Wow. Um, we have to think for ourselves and we have to develop our own policies and structures and direction and leadership and not be so subject to what other folk have for us. I think it's more on us to develop and build our own communities because there's always going to be, like I said, this has been going on since we've been here, right? Right. So we got to have our own strategy and our own organization and our own direction to come out of the problem. Now let me step back for a second. There's one thing you said. Nonviolence. I think was an effective tactic in some places, and it still is today in some places. The question is, is like Malcolm, we, we need to be flexible. We should be able to use any means that's available to us and be able to use that strategically to get what we want. You you feel me? Right. So I'm mm-hmm. not, I'm, anybody who's not, I'm not attacking the folks who are nonviolent. What, I'm, what my book is trying to address is, that that wasn't the exclusive tactic, and in some places it wasn't the most effective tactic. And what's been ha- what's happened is we've ruled out armed resistance as a viable option uh, uh, right. in our history, and it did happen in our history. And then people won't even consider it in some cases today because we've been so uh, 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 we've been sold some BS. I want to say something. Else. And, and you know what, Doctor Major, <laughs> that's what I wanted. To, that's what I really wanted to get at because what you're doing, you're showing us that it wasn't all us just walking up to the man, singing songs and getting washed down by water hoses and getting beat beside our heads and not retaliating. Because I because came you from, know with I, a bu- with a bully that ain't gonna work. That won't work because, like I said, <laughs> when I was down <laughs> when I was down there, um, and I came from the um, rural parts of Merlin, and the Klan uh-huh. was down there, and my father right. picked up a magazine. I'm talking about early '60s. He picked up a magazine and he showed me the KKK. He said, "If you see anything like this, son, they don't like black people." He said, "But the thing right. about it, don't be scared." And he showed me his firearm. He said, "They bleed like we do." My grandfather had five, six rifles right there in the front room, and he stayed on the porch. I knew, the, when, even though I was four or five, I knew those rifles that my uncles, my father, and all of them had wasn't just used for hunting. You know what I mean? No doubt. So, no so, doubt. so, so I, I, I saw that work down there. I never, I never seen a race riot until I came up here in Philadelphia, where they right. just had rocks and, then, and uh, uh, Other dimension in Maryland. If you look at the struggle that went on in Cambridge, Maryland. Denise where, Richardson. Uh, I mean, uh, Bernice had, Richardson. Uh, Gloria, Gloria, Gloria Richardson. Gloria Richardson. Right. Yeah, they were definitely armed. The black people were definitely armed. They had to protect themselves. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's why right. Malcolm X would, talk, would, would hail them, right? Would talk about 
the the movement there in Cambridge, Maryland. So it's the same same thing, you know, same thing. Hey, you Ralph. know, I only wrote about Mississippi, or well, the main reason I wrote about Mississippi when I first did this study, I was just going to do the entire South, uh-huh. but then I realized that there was just enough information in Mississippi for me to tell the story. I didn't need to go elsewhere, and, you know, because first I narrowed it down from the entire South to Mississippi, Louisiana. But then I just, when I looked at Mississippi, I said, there's enough information for, for me here to write this story. But we can go throughout the South. And one of the things I like to do and follow up to the book is because uh, I've been getting so many stories, like you telling me about your father and your grandfather. There's so many black people have been telling a story like that. Even my own family, my cousin called me after the book came out and told me about stories about my own family. So I want to record these stories from our people and t- show what our memory is, particularly in the South, about our own sense of resistance. Because I feel like if I don't record it and share it, then it's going to be lost. Okay. And see, we have a different perception uh-huh. about our people in the South. And historically, the black community you know, majority of our people have come from the South, so it's like an important dimension of who we are as a people. We look at the South, we look at our people. It's a little bit, we're a little bit more diverse now because we look at our community. We got people from Nigeria and Jamaica and Haiti and, you know, we're from all, all over, but the core of the Africans who were enslaved here in America are our ancestors of Southern, you know. Let's go and to, I include Maryland, like you say, as part of the South. Let's go to 267 area code. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Yes, Brother Timothy. How are you, uh, Reggie, Elliot, and Ralph? How are you, hey, sir? How you doing, bro? Good. How are you, Professor? You know, um, I live in Philadelphia, and um, my grandparents, my great-uncles and aunts, came up uh, some segregated Florida and Georgia. And... My grandfather said it was a cultural thing for a man to have his dog and a hunting rifle. Now, I know this for a fact. His sister, my great aunt, shot people down here. When she came up to Philly, she shot people in Philly. She was not afraid to shoot you and cut you. Trust me. If the time presented itself and she saw the enemy, she didn't see color. She saw an enemy. Uh, the other phase of what we're talking about now is I'm looking at the fact of what was taken from us in the South and how we were put into slavery. So we go into the aspect of looking in the, in the direction of reparations. Because if you read Hilly Newton's book, Revolutionary Suicide, his dissertation, working on his PhD, we see that another phase of our revolution to fight in the establishment is the Panthers of examples of policing the police. Okay? And it ended up in bloodshed. But that was one phase of the Panthers' fight of manhood and sisterhood to go up against the establishment. The other phase that I see us fighting this establishment is that if you observe the Jews when they came against the Nazis, because they were not totally satisfied with the Nuremberg trials, the Jewish Defense League, the other organizations within that, hunted down those Nazi criminals, men. They would go in Argentina and Brazil, sometimes kidnap them and bring them back to Germany 
to be put on trial. And sometimes they would kick, kidnap, and kill them. We need to realize what has happened in our history. And these people who helped put us in bondage need to pay for these crimes of hanging us, killing us, raping us, and taking our land. So us as a people fighting, it must go in many phases, in many directions. The gun is one thing, okay? Going to trial and hunting these criminals down who put us in this type of bondage needs to be talked about and focused on. Your opinion, sir? Could you state that again? I said to you that these people who put us in bondage must pay. They must be researched, found out. Those plantations that we were on and in were killed and hanged on and put in the same as these people who put us in this bondage over here in America should be researched and found upon and should have paid for those crimes to the well, I, reparations. I, just, just as just as just as the Jewish Defense League hunted down those Nazi criminals after the Nuremberg trials, because they were not satisfied with the outcome of it. They went to Argentina and Brazil because a lot of Nazis fled after World War II, fled and ran to Brazil and Argentina. Those Jews took and grabbed those guys up. Okay, a perfect example is Donaldson, the anchor person. They found uh, uh, a officer who was a Nazi, put him on television. He talked about how he was involved in, 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 in uh, Auschwitz. They took and locked him up many years later. We need to start hunting down these criminals who put us in bondage. Your opinion. Thank you for your call, Tim. Well, all right. I appreciate it, brother. I, I think I will go beyond what you stated because uh, I see reparations as a question that's not just related to our enslavement as a people. And I do I do believe those folks owe us. Don't get me wrong. But I think after reparations is for damages that have uh, been extended on a peop- against the people. I think we're over reparations because in 2012, we've documented that there were 313 black people killed by police in this country. You know, um, 40, 40, and most of the, uh, about 47% of those cases, uh, maybe even more. Well, let me say this, only 20% of those cases has been proven that those folks were armed. You know, one black person killed for every 28 hours. And that's what we've been able to ascertain from our research. Not even, you know, because, you know, police forces and local governments are required to keep that documentation. No, I would argue that we need reparations for also for the miseducation of our children in schools, for how black families were targeted during the subprime mortgage uh, uh, crisis in this country. You know, it's been proven that black people and black homeowners were targeted during that particular time for the drug war we know that has been perpetrated against our people, not only bringing cocaine into this country, but also the, the certain type of prosecution that's targeted black people that have the prison filled today. So, no, um, I, yeah, we should come after those folks, but there's people we should come after right now. These, these issues are issues of genocide. 
and answer to genocide is reparation. That's what it was for people who genocide was committed against in Nazi Germany, right? They received reparation. That's what happened when people were put in concentration camps during World War II. They received reparation. So we're saying that for slavery, for Jim Crow, for lynchings that occurred, as well as for what's occurring to our people right now in this country, our people deserve reparations. So I will go beyond what you stated. It hasn't ended. War is still being waged against our people in this country, and genocide is still being waged against our people in this country. So we deserve reparations as a response to that. Well. Yeah, um, Dr. Mojo, and I, I and I gotta I gotta say this again because sometimes it seems like I I am condemning the nonviolent part of the struggle, and I can't do that. I mean, I think boycotts are very effective. Uh, no, you no, mentioned no. and you no, mentioned no. that and you mentioned that in your book. Um, so there's a lot of nonviolent strategy th- that I do agree with. And then there's some that I don't, but I'm not condemning it. I mean, our people have to do what they have to do. But what right. I was saying, by any sharing... means that were available to them. Right. And, and what I was actually, because that's what really got uh, Mega Evers uh, murdered in his driveway, was when he told people not to uh, patronize those gas stations that wouldn't even allow them to use their restrooms. They were owned by the KKK. So that's actually, so actually, when Megger Evers did that, he hurt them financially, and they retaliated that way. I, that's my personal belief on why they came and assassinated him at that time. He was hurting them financially. Um, I think they assassinated him just because he was a black man standing up, period. Well, that's but, true, too. Because, you know, they, some people couldn't even stand that. But be it as it may, I, but let's let's look at the boycott. The boycott strategy is not necessarily nonviolent. In fact, if you look at my book, um, the boycott strategy, um, when it when it happened, it, it was complemented in Mississippi at least from '65 on, uh, with the Deacons for Defense. But we also had a group in our community called the Spirit or it had become called the spirit that when black people um, violated the boycott, there were consequences. There were consequences. If you, if if our community decides in a mass meeting that we're not going to shop at the stores so so we can get, um, you know, some employment for our people so we can get, common courtesy uh, accorded to our, our elders when they go down to the store and, and we can get some basic public services in our community. And we decided we're going to boy, we're going to boycott. If you decided to break that boycott, it would have been some consequences, you know, and the consequences could range. Uh, in some places it might be, they call and just keep you up all night, but in other places they might just whip that butt out there on the street when you're coming out that store. <laughs> so it wasn't necessarily nonviolent. That was one of the things I personally learned through doing this research that I didn't know. I thought everybody was doing it just because they were, you know, it was the right thing to do. But now they would make you pay, uh, pay a cost for breaking the boycott 
after the community had decided a mass meeting that we were going to shut down downtown. Uh, so it, it wasn't necessarily nonviolent, uh-huh. you know. Uh, Sometimes it was. Dr. King, of course, would do it in a nonviolent way. But most of our people, you know, I think only a few people were really truly nonviolent. And I'll, because, I, I don't you know, it takes discipline to, uh, for me to go in a store and sit down at a lunch counter and allow somebody to spit on me or pour something on me. And those people who did it, I would argue, were courageous. But it takes a special person with a special <laughs> type of discipline. And they don't they didn't allow everybody to do it because they knew some people would not be able to do it. Right. You know what I mean? Um, those people who did it, I applaud them because they brought attention to our struggle for people out the world and to isolate these folks, you know. I think that was important to me to show how I use the term. I think you're breaking up a little bit, Dr. Emoja. Say that again. Dr. Emojis, do me a favor. We're gonna take, take a break. We're gonna take a brief break, and when we come back, do me a favor, Dr. Emojis, hang up and call back because the, the, your line is breaking up terribly. Uh, we'll take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with the associate professor and chair of the Department of African American Studies at Georgia State University and the author of the book. We will shoot back. Dr. Ankieli Omowali Emoja is with us this evening. Uh, hang up, sir, and give us a call right back. We'll take a brief break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation. And you can join us at 215-253-7263. That's 215-253-7263. We'll be right back. tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated.
Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. W-E-L-O-V-E 108 FM Sound of the funky drama Music hitting your heart Cause I know you got a soul Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. We're joined this evening in conversation with activist 
Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of African American Studies at Georgia State University and the author of the book we're discussing tonight. We will shoot back. Dr. Ankiele Omowali Yamoja is with us. Dr. Omoja, you back with us? Dr. Yamoja? You back with us, sir? Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Okay. Let's go. Let's go straight to the phones. Two one five area code. Turn your turn your radio down. Yeah. Hello. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing fine. Yeah. I like to uh, make a statement and, and uh, ask a question. The statement is: when I grew up in on North in North Philly, on both sides of the street, yet yeah, uh, men who grew up came up there from down south and they went hunting, and we had guns. On both sides of us, see my father, he had plenty of guns in the house. And during my 15 years in that neighborhood, none of the houses was ever broken into. He had no burden. We respect one another. But also they knew the consequence they would meet if they broke in the wrong house. They'd get killed. Okay? The worst thing you can do is tell black people to, to disarm themselves in this day and time or any time of our history here in America. A friend of mine said, "A friend of mine said him and his brother they went to a gun show. You know what the white gun vendor said to them? He said he told me he said we don't understand black people. He said white people would never give their guns up for groceries. And and there's a myth that white people are buying more guns now since Barack Obama been president. That's not true. They've been buying guns all along. They've been teaching back in the 90s." Back in 1993, I went picked up some guns at a, at a Christmas Eve at, at a gun store. You should see the white people in there buying guns for their children. Right here in Philadelphia, they got two racist stations where they advertise guns every hour on an hour around the clock. One gun store, they even advertise the sale of silencers. They said silencers are legal. They sell silencers. These devils are not playing. They never stop buying guns. But you got these old bootlegging house Negroes who want to tell you to turn your guns in. For what? I would, ne- I would never turn my guns in. Never. And it doesn't, it doesn't make sense, man. Especially like a lot of black people want to move out to the suburbs and these little townships and stuff like that. And, and they say, I don't, I don't believe in arms myself. It's nice and peaceful out there. You better you you better have a fifty caliber machine gun living out there around no crackers, man. Get out of that damn mind. It's, it's foolish to put that nonsense in our head to be nonviolent. Just like Malcolm said, if somebody breaking your house and you get your gun to protect your home, that don't make you a burglar. When uh, the the clan went on uh, Elijah Muhammad's land. And he poisoned some of the cattle. He sent brothers down there with rifles. And, then, and this is the big myth that he didn't want you to carry guns. When one of the ministers called him and said, Mr. Muhammad, they're shooting at us. You know what he told him? He said, shoot back. Now, you ain't going to shoot back at somebody with a Bible or Holy Quran. You need the gun in your hand. It's, 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 it's foolishness, man, to teach our people that. And the question that I have for you, Concerning this concern of Martin Luther King Jr., I don't know whether this is true or not, but 
I was told one time that Dr. King, in his latter days, that he began to work with the Black Panthers. And they had took him to a warehouse where they showed him this arsenal that they had of weapons. And he was supposed to give a speech, and when he gave his speech, all hell was going to break out here in America as much as they can do damage with, with, with this weapon. I don't know if it's true or not. A second question is also that in a lot of the marches that he was involved in, that a lot of the people around him were strapped. And I, I, I like to, I'll I listen to, you know, to, to the answers to, uh, to uh, uh, both questions. Thank you for your call, Brother Mo. Okay. Right. I never um, heard about a relationship or a meeting actually with Dr. King and the Black Panthers. Uh, so I have no knowledge of that. Now, were people strapped at his rallies? You know, Dr. King at times had armed security. Uh, he didn't advocate people having guns at rallies and demonstrations, but of course several people did. Uh, you know, that was a tradition in the South. Um, he would argue against that because he felt like the presence of guns at demonstrations would alienate some of their liberal supporters. Um, so, yeah, he wasn't for that. But there were times, and of course, you know, early on in his career in Montgomery, he himself was armed and had guns, mm -hmm. and he was convinced otherwise. Um, but, you know, there was armed security. In fact, it was mentioned, you know, Dr. King's involved in a rally in Mississippi, or, or not a rally, a march in Mississippi in 66. And one of the deacons for defense said Dr. King had to leave the general rally and go to another one and uh, go to a funeral, rather. And he wanted the deacons to, for defense to escort him. Why? Because he knew they were armed. Uh, he knew that they were, they were professional at protecting people. Uh, there are other times during that same march in 1966 where um, Klansmen would attack the rally, and, of course, black people would be shooting back. And he was present at that time. Uh, so um, it's kind of a curious situation. Um, but he definitely ar argued against it um, at rallies and demonstrations. But he did articulate that black people had a right to protect their homes, protect their lives, and protect their property. So, um, And he, uh, he had respect, again, for the deacons for defense. Ralph, you had a comment? Yeah, Dr. Lojo, I, I did, it was the brother that wrote the book, uh, this nonviolent stuff. Stuff will get you killed. Get you killed. Yeah. And he Charlie said, Kyle. now I remember that brother said um, that there was a meeting between Dr. King and Bayard Rustin and, and a group of other um, activists at, at Martin Luther King's house. And what happened was Martin had firearms in his house protecting him and his family. And Bayard right, Rustin, that was in Montgomery. Right, Montgomery. and he said Bayard Rustin had a problem with that and was very angry right. at the fact that this brother had in his home firearms to protect him and his family. So Martin, yeah, and that's, Martin was intelligent, and I, I appreciated that brother bringing that point home. I was just like trying to add on to some things that Mo was talking about, but that was one example that showed that Martin... Martin knew what time it was. Yeah, that was in, we got to put it in historical context, though. 
that's in 1950, what, five, what was the year of Montgomery bus boycott? It's like 1955, I believe. Yes. And so, so when he's visiting Bay Rustin, that's where he's at. He becomes more committed to nonviolent philosophy later. And so by 64, so he travels to, uh, what's the name of the place? Uh, St. Augustine, Florida. And black people are just armed to the hilt down there. And he, Dr. King was very uncomfortable about that. And then in 1966, he would write that he was concerned because more black people were being armed at demonstrations. Of course, the Dickens for defense were a growing phenomenon at that time. So he, you know, he made the argument that black people shouldn't be armed at demonstrations. But, you know, the, the way the tide was turning, and particularly during that march, as, you know, uh, great Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture would talk about in his um, his uh, autobiography, uh, which, uh, Ready for the Revolution, that at that march there were debates going on every night on whether black people should be armed or not. And the tide was turning. More black people were convinced they should be armed at these rallies and demonstrations. Of course, when you get to Chapter 8 in my book, um, rallies going on in northern Mississippi, there's so many black people coming with guns to the rallies that one white judge ordered that everybody be searched because they knew we were coming with guns, right? And they're talking about everybody who was coming back. There's so many people coming back into the demonstration that the security had to watch out for the black people with so many guns because, you know, everybody coming with a gun ain't necessarily trained and disciplined, right? Mm-hmm. They right. might shoot when you might not want them to shoot. And so, uh, but that just shows you the nature of high change uh, from being, you know, everybody at least publicly being committed to nonviolence, even though there was always people to the side protecting folks. But to the end, everybody's carrying a gun. Man, that's, um, this is in, making in me proud, Dr. Jamoja, let, let me, I want to go back uh, to something that, uh, that the, the caller Mo was talking about, and I think the caller Timothy alluded to it. Um, and I want to get your opinion on it, your honest opinion. I'm going to give mine. I think one of the reasons why people don't talk about the armed resistance movement by our people and and why they don't confront uh, the white power structure, and I'm talking about confront them, a frontal uh, uh, confrontation about things that uh, have been wrong to our people is because religion has made our people docile and especially Christianity. We can look at our people that were enslaved, some of our forefathers, and you would have a plantation with just, say, uh, 50 of our forefathers on there. And that is run by the plantation owner, his master, and maybe a couple of overseers. So they might have been outnumbered 10 to 1. They would sleep at night. They would eat food that our ancestors would make. They had no qualms. Uh, uh, you know, they would beat our ancestors in front of others, and nothing generally generally would happen. You had other ancestors like Nat Turner, Gabriel Prosser, Denmark Vesey that wasn't going for it anymore, and others that might be nameless. But I think that the, 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 uh, the drilling of our people with Christianity, especially certain verses that may or may not even be uh, uh, attributed to the people that supposedly wrote it about our people uh, uh, respecting those in authority 
uh, obey the uh, uh, obey the masters that have rule over you. A couple of scriptures that was drilled into our people still affects our people today. That's my opinion. I, I wanted to get yours if you want to speak on it. Well, I actually think, you know, I wrote one of the reasons I wrote the book was I wanted to show where they think our people weren't resisting, we were. And I think that goes throughout our history. I think also black people, even when they might seem like they're taking stuff, they might be taking it just waiting for the opportunity to get back at somebody, right? Just waiting for the time. But it's not that they've been meaningly, uh, mentally destroyed or submissive. They're just waiting for the time that they can get, that they can retaliate, resist, and get free. Well, uh, I agree. Uh, a lot of our ancestors were, but yeah. you know, you had a large portion to me of our ancestors that were afraid of white folks that didn't want their children to confront there, them. There's always been fearful people. Okay. There's always been that, but there's always been people who are willing to fight. Back, yes, I, I agree know? with you. So we've always had that. And then the majority of people, I think, are somewhere in between. You know what I mean? Uh, some, Like I said, you got that bad Negro. Now you got people, even when the majority wasn't stepping up, they're going to speak out. And then you got some, they just waiting for the time. And, you know, okay. <laughs> so they could, that, that they can strike strike a blow for, for their own freedom and dignity and humanity. Now, in terms of Christianity, um, you mentioned Nat Turner. Nat Turner was a Christian man. <laughs> yes. You know, we mentioned, uh, we talk, you know, here Tubman, all these people during that time are Christians. And so. And, and then, then Mark Vesey was a religious. Uncle Tom's too, right? Okay. It's a range of people. And so we always had the Jeremiah Wright, you know, that Christian preacher who was teaching a liberation message. Uh, that's always been with us, as well as we've gotten these people who are selling us down the river. But even before that, even before we get to that, I mean, it goes beyond religion. Uh, I myself, I celebrate and embrace my the, the traditions of our ancestors from Africa. Okay. That's what inspires me. But I know even then we had some African priests on the continent who helped the enslavers, you know, who cooperated with them and collaborated with them. You, you feel what I'm saying? Yes. So if it goes beyond religion, you got betrayal and you got people who collaborate with our enemies. It goes beyond faith. And, you know, so you got some people in Christianity who are liberators and you got some who we ain't, we ain't proud of and, you know, they're part of the problem too. You know, and unfortunately, uh, behind these pulpits, a lot of times, uh, we might find more one than the other. Because uh, we got, some, you know, we got some people who are just trying to get rich and exploit our people uh, all the time. Some of them got the biggest churches, you know. Some of them right here in Atlanta where I live got the biggest churches. And, you know, uh, need I say more. But you, but you also got, you know, I know some churches, too, that I could go to any day of the week and talk about liberation. There have been churches who've, um, there have been a lot of church folk came out when I had my initial book signing here in Atlanta. And uh, actually, I spoke at churches 
at um, Bethel AME in Baltimore, they invited me to come to speak on a Sunday doing service. And then I, we had a book signing afterwards. You know what I'm saying? They invited me to two services. I went to one in, in the uh, city and one in the county. So um, there's a liberation tradition that still exists amongst our people in the churches, but then we got that, that sellout tradition too. And so we got about, we gotta, we, that's something we got to deal with. Got about 10 minutes left, and let's go to uh, 704 Area Code. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, this is Scotty Carr from North Carolina. Can you hear me okay? How are you, sir? I'm doing just fine. Um, I just want to thank your, your guest uh, for this great book that he have, has written about black resistance, which has been going on since first contact, so to speak, because there are some people out there that don't believe that we resisted by any means necessary, as Malcolm would say. Uh, my first stories of self-resistance here in the South and North Carolina uh, came came from my uncles, you know, and my grandfather defending against the homestead against the Klan. Uh, we're not that far away from Monroe, North Carolina, where, where uh, Robert F. Williams and the Black Guard were doing their thing and so that was like normal you know according to my uncles in the community that we live in 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 north carolina just outside of charlotte um but my question is um dr moser i have read that one of the last speeches that um not speeches sorry one of the last marches that dr king did was called the march against fear and that he had hired or had asked the uh, deacons for defense to provide security uh, for that march, armed security for that march. And I don't, you know, I hear a lot about Dr. King's marches, but I, I don't hear too much about the march against fear, nor the role that the deacons for defense, um, you know, played in that, presuming that my information is correct. Yes, sir, the march against fear. Uh, actually, and if you read, we'll, we'll shoot back. It's in chapter six of that book. And what happens is that um, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, headed by that time, Stokely Carmichael, we know today as Kwame Ture, and the Congress of Racial Equality, headed by Ford McKissick, they had a relationship with the people. And how, do, how does the march against fear develop? Is uh, James Meredith who was the first black man to try to go to the University of Mississippi, um, he decided in 1966 he was going to do a one-man march from Memphis, Tennessee to Jackson, Mississippi. It's like a 500-mile walk. And he wanted to show black people we had nothing to be afraid of anymore. We could go out and register to vote. Because, you know, the previous year, the voting rights act had been passed. But black people still weren't registering to voting because they still felt intimidated. So when soon as he crosses the Mississippi border from Tennessee, not too, you know, when I say soon, I'm talking about when he gets into, into the northern Mississippi, he's shot by this white man. Fortunately, he survives. But when that happened, Dr. King, Stokely Carmichael, Floyd McKissick, the leaders of NAACP, Roy Wilkins, and then uh, what's the guy's name? Whitney Young, they come to Memphis, and they say they're going to continue to march. But then Stokely, I mean, uh, uh, what's his name, Royal Wilkins and and Whitney Young, they want this march to really talk about how great the federal government's been doing and 
how Lyndon Johnson has their back, and they want to support some legislation. And on the other hand, Snickers saying, no, we should condemn the federal government on this march. And Dr. King's kind of in the middle. And and then the, the Snickers Corps also wanted to have the deacons come in and provide armed security. The deacons came there also and were, were offering to offer armed security. Dr. King, understanding that, and uh, uh, let me say that the NAACP, uh, Roy Wilkins and, and Whitney Young were opposed to having the deacons involved. They didn't want to alienate, you know, northern white people in the federal government. And so Dr. King sided in the middle with SNCC and CORE. He said that, um, and recognizing, too, that going through Mississippi was SNCC and CORE's territory, particularly SNCC's. They would go through the marsh route. That was SNCC's territory, and they needed them. Number two, uh, he said that he was, again, he was opposed to um, the people marching with guns, but he was fine with the deacons searching for the Klan and looking out for the Klan at the head of the march and behind the march. And he also was fine with them providing armed security at night when they settled down and they were going to set up tents and sleep at night that they should have armed security. And so uh, he agreed with that. He didn't invite them, but he, he certainly compromised, even though he was a little bit uncomfortable about it. He was uncomfortable at other times, so he asked them to escort them. So he, he uh, like the brother said, one of the brothers said, one of our hosts tonight said, he wasn't no fool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he knew what the situation was, and he knew he would need them at certain certain points. So he kind of, uh, because the young activists, the SNCC and the core people, were pushing the envelope and saying at this point, we need to have, uh, uh, they actually argued for all white, all excuse me, all black march, and they needed to have, uh, armed self-defense there, and so they kind of compromised. They did have a multiracial march, but it was clear it was black leadership. And All right, but well, thank you for, for thank you for clarifying um, that that bit of history for me. And y'all have a good night, and uh, been a great program. Great to uh, listen to you, sir. Thank you, Scotty, Thanks for your call. For your question, brother. Doctor Jamoja, we're coming up on yes, the, the end of our program. The two hours went quick, and we haven't even tapped the, the conversation and uh, some of the things I wanted to get to talk about but uh, this this thing is well, going to continue. Well maybe I'll come back another time. Uh, listen, I, your number's in the Rolodex now so I'm going to reach out okay. I'm going to reach out to you because we got to continue this conversation. This dynamic is is continuing on now. We see our young people in Ferguson uh, 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 that that, uh, that rebelled against these police killings and they were advanced upon and attacked peaceful marches that uh, that turned violent because uh, the powers that be in the government uh, militarized the, the police to come against our people with rubber bullets and tear gas. So we can see that this dynamic keeps repeating itself, and we got to come up with solutions ourselves. And I think by looking back at history, seeing what our fathers did, it can give us lessons to how we need to advance in the future. Yes, sir. I want to thank you for being with us. And before we leave tonight, uh, Dr. Moja, give us uh, any, uh, how the people can reach you, their websites, how they can get the book, anything you want to give us, go ahead. Yes, sir. Well, they can uh, check out my website, www.akumoja, that's A-K-U-M as in Mary, O-J-A, dot com. 
Uh, they can also find me on Facebook and by, by my name, Akinyele Omoja. I know some of y'all can't spell that, but you I also have a site called We Will Shoot Back, and you can look on Facebook. I have a We Will Shoot Back uh, page on Facebook, as well as look for me on Twitter, Baba AK. Uh, you can email me at N-U-A-F-R-I-K-A. That's New Africa, N-U-A-F-R-I-K-A, at gmail.com. And so I uh, look forward to hearing from folks. If they got any responses, email me, hit me up on Twitter, hit me up on Facebook under my name. Uh, you can Google me if you want to find out about me, and also my website, akumoja.com. I want to thank you for being with us, and thank you for your like, work. Like Tupac said, I ain't hard to find. <laughs> I, I want to thank you for being with us, and thank you for your work, All right. and we'll be in touch. Y'all take care. Thanks. Thank you too, my brother. Peace. All right. Peace. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowner's insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening, and uh, again, I want to thank our guest that was with us with us this evening, activist, associate professor, and chair of the Department of African American Studies at Georgia State University, and the author of the book, We Will Shoot Back, Dr. Ankiele Omoja, and I want to thank him for being with us this evening to talk about the book. Brother Reg, Brother Ralph, interesting discussion with Dr. Omoja. Yes, sir. And... Uh, we're looking forward in the future to having him back on because a lot of things is happening, uh, happening all the time. And I really didn't get you the chance to even scratch the surface of some of the things I want to discuss in the book. Uh, Ralph brought up quite a few things that uh, that uh, I would like to go right into. So we'll we'll reach out to uh, to him and get him on in the future. For, well, be, before we take uh, before we take leave for the night, there's a lot of things that have been discussed that are ongoing problems with our community. Mm-hmm. And with this program, Time for an Awakening, what we like to do is to have solutions for our people that are fed up, tired of hearing the same old rhetoric, want some new leadership, want some new vision, want to take action. Please spread the word. Be one of the million. 
We have a movement that's serious, become one of the conscious, one of the one million conscious black voters, spread the word, become part of an initiative. If you want some more information, please go to the website. I am the number one of the million.wordpress.com or do a Google search. Become one million, become one, excuse me, become one of the million conscious black voters and contributors. You can make a change. This is an organization that is trying to make a movement, trying to do things for our people and have solutions. Instead of listening to the radio program only, become active, do something. Here's a chance if you want to participate. There's T-shirts. I am one of the million. $20. Very nice T-shirts I purchased a couple yesterday. Brother Ralph purchased a couple yesterday. Come on, let's support an organization that's trying to do something for our people. Become one of the million black voters and contributors that's trying to do something to change. And instead of having rules and regulations dictated to our community, let's turn the tables and start dictating stuff for our community. If you don't want to do it for yourself, do it for the future of your children. <laughs> I totally you know agree. And you know what, Ellie, I want to add on to something. And if the, the word voter turns you off, take it off and just become one of the million conscious people. You know, but these these men are this organization that um, is doing something positive. They have a lot of positive things laid out. A plan not only for us, but a plan for when we're gone, our children can then pick up the pieces and carry it out. So I, I, I'm with Reg. I, you know, I'm impressed, and it's growing. It's growing strong, and uh, just Google it and become one one of the million. That's all I can say. Well, listen, you, you brothers uh, ex- express my sentiments uh, exactly. We've, we've had the men on uh, in prior weeks. We've posted information on the Facebook page. We've shared information. And we can also see what's going on. Uh, you know, I talk with uh, a couple of uh, our listeners at the end of the week, and we can see here that in Philadelphia the Democratic Party is having their convention in 2016. They didn't already put out their uh, uh, planks saying that they're going to be the voice of the middle class. So where does that leave the majority, overwhelming majority of our people that support the Democratic Party that that are not in the middle class bracket? We can see, I was watching Face the Nation this morning, and they talked about the early projections of uh, the uh, Iowa caucuses. And they said that uh, Hillary Clinton is overwhelmingly leading any other competition. So if we want to keep repeating history and being fools again and with the same old dog and pony show, or we can make a change to help our people, to help our children, and to move our people in a different direction. The choice is ours. Let's make the right choice. One more thing. Watch the house Negroes because they're going to be coming up. They're getting this thing in order. The plantation is coming to Philadelphia. And they're sending out their, they're getting their house Negroes ready. So we are going to be bombarded with a bunch of propaganda, man. And this is no laughing matter when it goes on over and over and over again. I mean, you know, I'm just sick of it. Well, hope, hopefully we'll be the voice of uh, 
uh, the one crying in the wilderness will be the voice of reason for our people. Because believe me, I think the majority of our people are fed up with this foolishness. They might not voice it. You might not hear their voice. But they're fed up with this stuff. They're fed up. You can see it. Uh-huh. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always. And we'll be back next week, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon, or you're watching your children playing after school, they sing.
Save the children. 